Hey guys and gals, thanks for tuning in. Thanks also for the reviews you've left, including this one. Pure Gold. Finally, a pod that lays it all out there for you. I wish more of us could articulate our thoughts as he does. The world would be a better place. Tuning in every week from good old Climax Saskatchewan, where friends and neighbors come together. Thank you, 222. Well, dear listener in Climax, you're very welcome, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. And now, your number one source for what's happening in Canada today. From the mind that brought you 222 minutes, this is my 222 cents. Three, two, one. Talking about the Canadian government is a lot like living through a pandemic. Every day is fucking Groundhog Day, and our Puxitani Prime Minister was at it again. The Bloc Québécois voted alongside the Liberals to squash an investigation into what appears to be a very damning cover-up of sexual misconduct in the military. I talked about this in a previous episode, but here's a quick recap. Chief of Defense Staff Jonathan Vance is alleged to have been engaged in sexual misconduct. Harjit Sejan, Canada's Minister of Defense, and Justin Trudeau himself both denied that they knew anything about it, only to contradict themselves on the public record and have multiple staffers come forward with evidence that their offices had been apprised of the situation. These men chose to do nothing about it for years, all the while extolling their virtues as feminists. Yeah, we believe all women, but we don't have to fucking listen to them. An investigation was trying to get to the bottom of this, and the Liberals teamed up with the Bloc to shut it down. Now, as bad as the Liberals are in all this, I think the Bloc is even worse. They literally used a victim of sexual misconduct as a political bargaining chip. It takes a special kind of asshole to do something this despicable. So, like the SNC-Lavalin investigation, and the We Charity investigation, and the Mark Norman investigation, these have been stopped by the people being investigated. Does that seem a little fucking dumb to anyone else? And again, I talked about this in a previous episode, but we really need to change the laws on the books so that the people being investigated can't veto the fucking investigation. And again, the conservatives won't fix this either because it means that one, they will take away any potential power they might have to squash investigations into their own potential future misdeeds, and two, it takes away from the argument that is, vote for me, you need someone in power you can trust. No, assholes. We need a system that works for the taxpayers regardless of who's sitting in the big chair. Right now, you're asking yourself, 111 times 2, what did the block get out of this? They've already got one-sided equalization, enough representation in Parliament to call whatever shots they see fit, a dairy cartel, mandatory bilingualism that disproportionately affects them in a good way, and really good strip clubs. What more could they possibly want? Great question. It was announced literally the same day that Quebec-based Air Canada was going to receive a multi-billion dollar government bailout, almost six billion to be exact, conditional on them buying new planes from Airbus, another Quebec company, as well as restoring more local routes and providing refunds to customers whose flights were cancelled. Bitch, you need to refund those cancellations regardless. You took money for a service you did not provide. That money is not yours. This 
was nothing but posturing to try and put a better spin on things. Also, that means that our government is literally subsidizing travel during a pandemic. Does that seem like a fucking dumb idea to anyone else? At the very least, they're paying for Air Canada to fly empty planes around the country. Not exactly what I would have expected from a government so keen on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So, in one fell swoop, two Quebec companies received absolute fucking windfalls at the expense of everyone else and the environment. At this point, our government has bailed out the Quebec airline industry more times than my buddy Jeremy has bailed on getting drunk with the boys. And just like when we're getting drunk, the boys are stuck with all the heavy lifting while Justin Trudeau, much like my buddy Jeremy, sits at home in a beanbag chair covered by a fine layer of Cheeto dust. Man, I wish Trudeau would handle the climate change crisis the same way he did COVID. Here's a bit of free advice. The next time you sell your soul for an unfair market advantage, stagger the press announcements so they don't happen on the same fucking day. Idiots. The tide, ladies and gentlemen, is finally starting to turn against our camera-happy overlord. CNN, who used to love waving Justin Trudeau in the face of their few remaining listeners as an answer to everything orange man bad, released a piece detailing exactly how poorly the liberals have handled Canada's vaccine rollout. This led to some real bizarro world shit where common sense Twitter accounts were defending CNN of all people. Now there were still some diehard Trudeau groupies trying vainly to discredit this. The defense of Trudeau's strategy of smoking pot in a beanbag chair in his stepdad's basement while covered in a fine dust of Cheetos and yelling up the stairs whenever he wants more pizza pops had a few threads of commonality, so let's address them here. The first is that they said former conservative Prime Minister Brian Mulroney privatized a vaccine company in 1984, which made Canada unable to handle any future outbreaks. Look. Nothing says your parents or cousins better than obsessing over things that happened in the 80s. Shout out to Oilers fans. Forgetting for the moment the fact that every part of government except for our judicial system, military, and regulators should be privatized, this argument has more holes in it than Canadian arms do not. First off, it happened an entire fucking generation ago. If you're going to lay blame on the government that made the decision, you have to lay equal blame on subsequent governments for not rectifying said decision and prorate it based on time and power. Sadly for the people making this argument, that means that this is approximately 51.35% the Liberals' fault. Secondly, it happened an entire fucking generation ago. Alexander Graham Bell was a Canadian who moved to the United States, but we still all managed to get phones. Thirdly, it happened an entire fucking generation ago. Since then, many companies capable of manufacturing a vaccine have emerged in Canada. Sadly, none of them are eligible for government procurement because they're not big donors to the Trudeau Foundation. Fourthly, it happened an entire fucking generation ago. Because this decision wasn't a shock to modern Canadian citizens or their elected counterparts, it allowed us to plan for a vaccine rollout that didn't involve us depending on China to fill the order because we apparently ordered our vaccines off Wish.com. 
The second argument against criticism of our government's vaccine rollout is that Canada was determined to be the best country to live in by a magazine. Jesus titty fucking Christ. Does that seem a little fucking dumb to anyone else? This has literally nothing to do with whether or not Canada has been effective in vaccine rollout. It's like looking at a hot chick and saying, she's obviously not retarded because she has an ass you could found a religion on. Those two things are in no way related. And, spoiler alert, the only time Canada is the best country to live in is when you're either a Quebec-based aeronautics company or a militaristic sexual predator. And that's about as far as it went for the counter-arguments. The moral of the story here, kids, is that if you live in a country where straws are illegal, maybe you shouldn't grasp at them. Breaking news. Aaron O'Toole announced this week that, if elected, the Conservative Party would be instituting a carbon tax. Tune in next week when he's expected to attend question period wearing blackface. Now, I want to say that unions are useless, but that's not exactly being fair to them. What unions are is toxic. In fact, you'll be hard-pressed to find an economist anywhere that will tell you that they aren't. Firstly, they cause deadweight losses to the economy. Now you're asking, 222, what are deadweight losses? Don't unions help the workers get better wages? Great questions. Let me run it down for you. Let's say you have 10 people working without a union and they make $10 each. This small economy makes 100 bucks. Now the union comes in. The workers get better wages, say $15. But with the added manpower cost per unit of production, the company shelves some projects because they won't make any money on them under the new system. So now you have six people making $15 each. This economy is now making $90 instead of $100, and four people don't have jobs at all. That's deadweight losses. But there's more. There's always more. As the unions become more powerful and keep demanding more shit, the companies are less able to compete because the union is an anchor dragging them down. Look at manufacturing. The three most expensive items for manufacturing companies are raw materials, electricity, and manpower. Hypothetically speaking, if you make manpower so expensive that it makes sense for them to move their, say, automobile factory to, say, Mexico, they will. Side note, this is also why unsustainably expensive renewable energy hurts Canada's global competitiveness. So now, instead of 10 people making $10 each, you have zero people making $15 each for a grand total of... Carry the seven, zero fucking dollars. And the reason why is that unions have artificially inflated the wages too far past what the market can bear. But there's more. There's always more. Isn't it weird that every time a contract renewal is up, it's always such a big deal? I mean, these guys have been negotiating contracts for years, and they don't start from scratch every time. It should be just a case of adjusting for current market conditions, calling it a day, and going for a beer. But it's not. It's always threats and strikes and lockouts and posturing and vapid speeches. 
doesn't that seem a little fucking dumb to anyone else? Yeah, there might be the odd loophole that needs to be closed, like the union I belonged to a million years ago, where we had 15-minute breaks for every shift under six hours, so the store scheduled people for five hours and 45 minutes and snuck in an extra 15 minutes of productivity. Or, for example, what's going on in fucking Quebec right now? This one's good. You're gonna love it. The Quebec Provincial Association of Teachers had a walkout on April 14th until 9.30 a.m. Seems a bit funny, doesn't it? Why have a two-hour strike? It's because at these 73,000 schools affected, there was no one to receive the children. The logistics couldn't be redone in time, and parents, well, some of them anyway, have jobs. So, by striking for two hours, they effectively shut the school down for the day and still got paid for all their time after 9.30. Watch for that to be addressed in every collective bargain in Canada going forward forever. You see, it's really hard to be a teacher these days. They have to work upwards of 30-something hours a week for nearly 200 days a year, only get the summers off, pull in only around 100 grand, their job security is practically written in stone, and they have a defined benefit pension guaranteed for the rest of their life after they're done that's barely even gold-plated. Honestly, my heart goes out to them for the sheer injustice of it all. I mean, if you're so hard done by, why don't you just quit? Credit where it's due, though. Those clever assholes in Quebec found a hell of a loophole, even if they'll only get to use it once. But it's never enough. It never is. There's more. There always is. You end up with striking workers trying to block farmers in Saskatchewan from getting fuel during seeding. You get right-to-work people who the union call scabs, which is another example of the left being better at naming shit, crossing the picket lines to work. Newsflash, folks. The unions don't own the jobs. The company has the right to get anyone they want working them, and everyone has the right to do the work if they want to. If union workers would rather stand outside and yell chants like a bunch of retarded monks than actually do the jobs they're hired to do, well, I guess that's also their right. But Unifor does not have the right to dox right-to-work employees like they did in Newfoundland two years ago simply for them trying to put food on their families' tables. The left loves to say that the government has no right to get in the way of what consenting adults want to do in the bedroom, which I agree with completely, but they sure love to have that same government get in the way of what kind of understanding those same consenting adults would reach in the workforce. You see, it's never about reaching a fair deal. It's always an argument about wanting more, never what's thought of as being fair. You might reach a win-win agreement the first time, but they use that as a starting point for the next negotiation. Every iterative time, things move further in their favor. One of the biggest problems with unions is that it creates an environment detached from consequences. There's no accountability. You see, in the real world, if you suck at your job, you can get fired, demoted, have your hours reduced, or any number of things that financially reflect your subpar performance and incentivize you to do a better job. In unions, not so much. In the city of Calgary, union employees average over 10 sick days a year, and that's before the pandemic. In 2015, Constable Stephen Baker in that same Calgary, Alberta, 
left his restricted firearm in his vehicle while having supper with his sister at a bar. When he left shortly after 11, he found that his car had been broken into. The restricted rifle inside had been stolen, as well as several notebooks with confidential case information. The man in question was suspended with pay for about a year while the investigation ran its course, at which time he was reinstated. This one's funny. Let's say you're a regular citizen. Let's say that as a regular citizen, you have a restricted firearm in your vehicle. The only legal way to transport it is to go directly from point A to point B. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, and most definitely do not stop for supper at a bar until after 11 p.m. If you, as a citizen, were caught doing this, you would face criminal charges. What criminal charges do you ask? A maximum of five years in prison, according to the Canada Criminal Code. This guy set up shop at a bar on his way home with a restricted firearm, and because of the strength of his union, he managed to avoid jail time and still be paid his regular wage for a fucking year. I mean, what was this guy's plan anyway? He couldn't have legally put the rifle into a cab, he couldn't leave it there overnight, and several hours of supper tend to lower one's ability to operate a motor vehicle safely. Hell, we even have laws for that kind of thing that people like him are generally tasked with upholding. Does this seem a little fucking dumb to anyone else? It begs the question, are we a country that takes gun control seriously, or are we a country that gives special favors to the right people? I have a restricted license. It came all the way from Miramichi, New Brunswick, and it comes with the stipulation that I don't break the fucking law. If I, a random citizen of this formerly great country, decide to take a big old shit on firearm regulations, it comes with consequences. Mainly, I won't be able to get them afterwards, but also, it can mean I go to jail. Not to sound like a broken record, but it's rules for me and not for thee. So some fucking asshole named Steve, which I understand is a bit redundant, got paid a hundred thousand-ish dollars to avoid jail time for a work-related offense with a restricted firearm and then got reinstated. I don't know about you people, but I don't want my taxes to go towards that guy writing parking tickets, let alone getting his job back. And if he didn't have a union, he wouldn't have. And this is where the rubber meets the road. By getting in perpetual dick-swinging contests, ambiguous, right? Public sector unions have made themselves the enemy of the taxpayer. This whole thing is pretty common, though. Even when people in unions get some kind of slap on the wrist or even a suspension, it's usually with pay. As of last year, a Toronto constable named Yuan Florin Floria had made over a million dollars in pay since being suspended in 2007. That's right. He got paid over a million bucks to sit at home on a beanbag chair covered by a fine layer of Cheeto dust while he was being investigated for links to organized crime, money laundering, kidnapping, and the laughably understated breach of confidence. No shit. And that's just the tip of the iceberg with Toronto. Four cops were suspended for five years each with pay at over 100k a year when they were accused of planting drugs, and I don't mean in the agricultural sort of way. 
there's another two million bucks. Does that seem a little fucking dumb to anyone else? In fact, the Toronto Star, who were no fucking help with this episode of the podcast, by the way, reported that there are over 120 cops in Ontario who are currently suspended with pay. What in the irresponsible municipal spending fuck are you people thinking? You want to talk about defunding the police? It seems to me this is a pretty good place to start. Meanwhile, it was reported last week in the Boston Globe that a union president in Boston got to keep his badge after an internal investigation concluded that he likely molested a 12-year-old girl. He then went on to have five more people accuse him of molesting them in later years. Five more people whose lives were ruined because a unionized environment protected him instead of them. Unions spend a lot of money defending these assholes, but not as much money as they spend during elections. Between 2011 and 2016, unions made up 94% of third-party election spending in Ontario. $15.4 million, if you're wondering. How much did evil corporations trying to steal elections so they can make more money off the backs of hardworking taxpayers spend over that same period, by the way? Less than 4%. But I digress. If I'm a cop, I don't want my union dues to be wasted defending scum of the earth, and I damn sure don't want it to look like I'm condoning these behaviors. Why don't they speak up? What the hell is wrong with you people? It can't be that hard to take a stand and say that your union shouldn't be dedicating resources to people who break laws or molest children. Does that seem a little fucking dumb to anyone else? And why do they get away with this shit? Because we allow them to work in the dark. Their members don't even know how the money gets spent. The conservatives do a lot of things wrong, but a couple things they got right were Bills 377 and 525. Bill 377 said that unions have to disclose spending over five grand and any salary over 100k. Bill 525 introduced secret ballots for union certifications. Up until then, you had to put your name on your vote. So no matter how it played out, you had the potential to have your career affected by it. This is literally voter intimidation, and it seems to me that a democracy should be all for secret ballots, right? Wrong. So fucking wrong. One of the first things the liberals did when they took over in 2015 was to repeal both of these bills. Basically, you have a group with unchecked election spending and a vested interest in undemocratic operations supporting their pet parties conditional on them remaining in power. I can't be the only person who sees something wrong with this. Our various leftist parties love to say that the further right ones are evil because they're in cahoots with evil corporations. Meanwhile, those same leftist parties are, at least by proxy, in bed with organized crime, money launderers, and kidnappers, and that is a breach of confidence. Well, folks, that's the show for this week. Friendly heads up, there won't be one next week, but it'll be back the week after. Thanks to James Butler and Guapogi Talaba. This country has been broken, and addressing the unchecked power unions have would be a good start to fixing it. But that's just my 222 cents.